Mean Old Lion Media presents the history of being black. What up, though? Welcome to another episode of the history of being black. I am Jay Hall, and I am here today with someone that is very needed, I feel, in the culture. Podcast, host, author, and a professor of history, teaches civil rights and black power movement at Ohio State University, a school I grew up hating my whole life because I'm from Detroit, but that's okay, though. I'm going to get past all that. <laughs> I'd like to welcome to the show Hassan Kwame Jeffries. How you doing, good brother? I'm doing wonderful, man. It's good to be with you. It's good, man. You know, I wish that I've done a lot of growth in my life, and I promise you, there are certain things I try to grow past, but anytime I see Ohio State, when I have to read it, I don't know why I have to point that out. So please forgive me. I'm a work <laughs> in progress. Good. I'm a work in progress. It's not you. It's me. I'm telling you that right now. It's not you. Either. I understand. I understand the depths of rivalries, uh, and okay. certainly between Michigan and Ohio. So it's all yo, good. Yo, here's the thing, though, brother. I'm a Michigan State fan, but the hatred towards Ohio is still the same. Up. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. Oh, I get it. Yo, and, and I went to Howard. Like that's what I'm trying to tell you how bad it is. <laughs> it's like, but when I see it, I'm like, ah, oh, ooh, you know. But it's all good, though. How you doing today? I'm doing well, man. I'm doing well. That's good, man. You know, I try to ask for people's well-being because from my perspective, every since the pandemic, 2020, every year after 2020 has been sequels. And I always try to ask, how's everyone's state of mind? Because, you know, that was such a universal change for everyone. We all go through our own private changes, but that was such a, like, I don't know nobody I talked to, friend or foe, that didn't go through some kind of significant change yeah. and still going through it. Yeah, no, it was definitely, a, definitely, um, world changing and life changing, as as you as you rightly point out, right? I mean, individually, it, it impacted everybody individually. So, no, I appreciate the question. Still standing, man. I'm still standing. So, moving That's forward. Good. That's good. That's good, man. Um, off the top, I see that you know you're a Brooklyn native. Born and raised, uh, Brooklyn, New York. Uh, yeah. Did my high school years or elementary high school years there, and then headed south for for college. Not not to the yeah, mecca, but to Morehouse. <laughs> it's all good, brother. You know, I wouldn't go go there. It's all it's, it's only so many things you can point at, and the show is only so long. You know what I mean? But it's all good. It's all good. But um, what part of Brooklyn? Crown Heights. Um, uh, my brother and I um grew up in Crown Heights. It's just him and I. Um, it, uh, and 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 we straddled Bed Stuy. That's where my grandmother lived. That's where our church was. And then we went to high school in Flatbush. So when you're in, you know, when you're in New York and you're with those neighborhoods, I mean, you're you're kind of all over, you know, you have your, you know, you have where you live, but you know, you're playing sports in one area, you go to school in another area, you go to church in another area. So uh, we were right there in the heart of central Brooklyn. Yeah, that was the, so I, I lived in New York twice and both of them was Brooklyn. So I stayed okay. in, yeah, I stayed in Carroll Gardens, Brooklyn Heights oh, yeah. and Crown Heights. Um, I, okay. I spent a lot of time, I spent a lot of time at Crown Heights right over there on Franklin Ave. Yeah. Um, Sal still got one of the best slices ever, you know what I mean, to me. <laughs> and I did a lot of running in Prospect Park, you know. Oh, yeah. So Brooklyn has a special place, you know, in, in my heart when I when I think about it. But you're right, because that was the first thing I saw that you can be in Brooklyn and go to school in Queens, but then take dancing in Manhattan and all your schools are called PS. It's like a number. And I remember um, teasing somebody. I was like, yo, why is your school's name like PS68-4? It's that hard to remember. And she was like, what? Your school's a name at the slave owners. And I was like, you're right. Uh, I, had no, <laughs> I had no comment. No, I had no, no comeback for that. No, <laughs> no comeback come for that. that. They, were, they were correct. And the reason why I'm, I'm digging into, you know, starting off with the Brooklyn, you know, your background so much, because I want to know, with you being an educator and a scholar and all that, 
what were your early stages that Brooklyn taught you and the significance of that? Yeah, that's a great question about sort of early stages and what do you what do you learn from life growing up? Um, and I think the the best way to answer that is to think about sort of the context of the times, um, because Brooklyn is different today, you know, than it was 20 years ago, than it was 20 years before then. Uh, and I grew up. I really came of age in the 1980s, graduated from high school in 1990. So, you know, was in high school in the 80s. And in the 80s in New York and in Brooklyn in particular, in Crown Heights, I mean, it was a rough place. You know, we there, there were there were worse neighborhoods in terms of sort of crime and violence. But this was this was this was tough. I mean, this was the middle of the um, of the crack, the crack epidemic. Um, people were. We you know we're fighting for control of corners, and where we lived, and you're familiar. You know we were off of Eastern Parkway and Nostrand Avenue, so we were we were Sterling Place between New York and Nostrand, and you know you know by eighty six eighty seven, I mean you know I'm going to bed hearing gunshots every night, right? And it was so. I, mean, I think about sort of where I live now. I couldn't even imagine hearing gunshots nightly, right? I couldn't imagine my daughters going to bed. It was so common that I'd be upstairs in my room because we, we my, my, my parents, social workers, but they saved and they had bought a house, which was important because that put us on the interior of a block as opposed to on the corners. And it was safer to be on the interior as opposed to the corners. And I remember I, I'd be upstairs doing math, homework, and, you know, I hear some gunshots or whatever, and I just keep on doing math on work. And then I walk downstairs, you know, go downstairs to the kitchen and grab a little snack or something. And my dad would be down there. And he was, you know, he, he was former Air Force in between Korea and Vietnam. And I say, and, and he tell me, he say, how many, how many did you hear? And I knew immediately he was talking about gunshots. And I was like, ah, I counted seven or eight because you would instinctively count them. You wouldn't feel like you were in danger. You know, you just, you, you understood where it was. And, and then he's like, yeah, he said, I counted the same. And then he would tell me what it was. He was like, oh, that was a hand, you know? And, and then I'd get my snack, say goodnight and go back upstairs. I mean, it's a way, but you, you never really escape that. Because as soon as I hit the door outside on my way to school, immediately I was hyper aware, right? Of what was going on, what was going on around me. Which corners could I take? Which, which route am I going to take to the subway? And it actually wasn't until almost, you know, a decade, no longer than that, maybe 15, 20 years later, that it was explained to me as I would go back to Brooklyn to visit my family and my 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 wife, girlfriend at the time, fiance, wife, she'd be like, you go back to New York, like you don't want to do anything, right? You get all, you don't talk and all this other stuff. And I was playing it off. I was playing it off like, yo, that's the New York state of mind, man. You just got to be hard. You got to be hard going to New York, you know? We were like, you know, crimes, what are you talking about? It wasn't explained. I didn't realize that what I was actually doing, what what that was manifesting was post-traumatic stress. Because, and it was explained to me by a black psychologist. He was like, when you go back to New York, he said, it's 2005. He said, when you go back to New York, the reason why you don't want to go outside or take your wife to go see the sites and stuff like that, because you're not going back to the New York of 2005. You're going back to the New York of 1985. You're going back to the New York that you grew up in. You're going back to the New York that in 1990, the year I graduated, has 3,000 homicides. 3,000, right? You're talking about 10 a day. I mean, that's insane, right? And 
that, that, you know, that's formative. And it was important for me to sort of recognize, like, that's what I was doing. But it, it, it never really leaves you, right? That, that hyper-awareness of space and, and, and activity, it, it never really goes. So New York, for better and for worse, I think, you know, has stuck with me forever. Yeah, that's true. Because when I go back home to Detroit, I've gotten to the place in my life where I probably go to like three spots and the rest I'm chilling at home. So <laughs> you're absolutely, you're absolutely correct. Like I'm, I'm not venturing all over the city and everything. Like there are just certain places and, you know, to its defense, some of those places probably have changed for the better. But what I recognize was in my DNA from coming up, there's still memories there to what, you know, you were introduced to when you think about that travel of growing up, when did the, I would say for you, were you just kind of existing, you know, coming up in Brooklyn? Or did you recognize very early that the education part, the scholar part was kind of like in the first stages of your upbringing? Because you come from an educated family, from your uncle to your brother. You know, if someone looks on that on paper, they're like, yo, this, this whole family is like was in the books all day. But what was that experience for you personally? Was it like that? Or something you recognize later on in life? Yeah, no, I think from the very beginning, um, uh, when we were youngsters, education was uh, emphasized in my family. Um, from my, you know, grandmother who was a registered nurse uh, to my parents who had, uh, who were both social workers, so they both had master's degrees. You mentioned my uncle who was one of the pioneers in black studies. And so education and advanced education was always something that we that that wasn't just like an option was like, all right, you can talk about what you want to do later in life after you get your medical degree, after you get your law degree, after you get your Ph.D. and whatever. And we're like five or six years old. We're like, we want to be baseball players. Right. And they're like, that's cool. After you get your law degree, after you get your you know, your, your, your medical degree. So education, not just, you know, not just like getting through high school. And not even just getting through college, right? Like it was, we were always, we were told, right, that the educational endpoint, right, is some advanced degree, period, period. You can do whatever you want to do after that, fine, but you're going to get there. So in that sense, education was highly valued, you know, within within the home. Didn't mean that, you know, we was waking up, yeah, I can't wait to do homework. Like nobody's like that, right? I mean, we're trying to live life too. But we also understood that, you know, it's it's so easy to get derailed, right? To get thrown off. Like, no, no, no. We have a mission. So, you know, when we are running running the streets in the times that we did, it was always like, you know, but I I do gotta get back and get my homework done. Right. I mean, so there was a seriousness about about education and learning very early on. You know, that wasn't just I don't think it was necessarily unique to my family, right? I mean, the the value of education within the African American community too often gets understated. Right. I think one of the things that was unique was the fact that I would have been second generation. And in some instances, it actually was only a second generation college. Right. I mean, my, on, on one side, I had a grandmother who had gone to college, but we were still just second generation, historically black college as well. Shout out to the HBCUs. My parents went to Central States. Um, but that made a difference, too, because it was like, all right, college and beyond. Um, but I think also within that, I recognized that we worked hard, my brother and I worked hard, but there were cats who we knew who never made it to college, who never made it beyond college, who were smarter than us, right? Just a function of circumstance and opportunity. 
did not provide them with the support that they needed to get to the same places that my brother and I would wind up being. Sometimes I don't think when it comes to black education as a whole, we get the grace that is needed in the sense of what we are balancing just to arrive. So when you think about the gunshots that you heard every single night, I mean, I, I relate to it, right? And I'm sitting there like, okay, cool. But you're right. I wouldn't want my kids to kind of yeah. grow up in that, right? Like, And I don't know how you show up every day like it's fine. I mean, looking back, you know, you get a, depending on what kind of parent you got, if you got a C on your report card or a C minus, you know, it's like, oh, you can do better, da, da, da. But looking back on it, it's like, it was amazing you even got a C. <laughs> Right. You know, not, not the cheerful underachievement, but it's a, it's amazing when you think when you talk about you walk because I mean you know did you grow up in the brownstone because you said you walked out because I, I understand the Brooklyn atmosphere so when you walk out you look to your left you look to your right and you're making that decision on how to go to school every 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 time you set your you step out we stepped out of the house we were making and 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 and, and I'm not overstating this we were making life and death decisions in simply deciding which route am I going to take, depending upon the time and uh, of day or night, which route am I going to go to get to the subway, to walk the seven or eight blocks to the subway? And which groups am I going to see? And if I see too many people over here, am I going to switch? You know, am I, I going to change, you know, cross over the street? That is stressful, right? I mean, and so it is, it is a wonder that any of us sort of made it out of sort of, you know, that, that time frame, And a lot of us didn't, because this is also the beginning of the era of, of mass incarceration. When I was graduating from high school in 19, in 1990, that year, uh, the year before we see the arrest of the Central Park, the Central Park Five, right? I mean, so in other words, their fate was very much could have been my fate and that of my homeboys had we just been in a different place, right? In the city at that same moment in time. So I'm glad you brought that up because that's what I wanted to get to too, is that when it comes to black education and the black experience, you're dealing with that within, you know, your five block radius of making a decision how to go to school. But I think too, what white America don't understand is that that guard doesn't stop because even when we step outside of our neighborhoods, outside of our comfort zone, there's a different type of guard. When you talk about the Central Park Five, but also during that period of the 89, 90, Brooklyn itself was going through a lot of conflict with the black community, the Jewish community and everything during that time period. Young black man being jumped, murdered in certain neighborhoods in Italian neighborhood they weren't supposed to be in, the election of the first black mayor in New York, all during that period, you were there in that sense of it. So it doesn't, that sense of alarm that you had doesn't just cut on because you're trying to escape the hood, you know, in that, that sense, you know. Right. Um, and I guess my question to you is, as you're coming out of high school and these things are happening within that pivotal year, that 89, 90 year, does that play into your decision making when it comes to choosing your college? Because I always like to make argument: we don't choose colleges the way other groups choose colleges. Oh. Like we 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 don't. Like a lot of them choose colleges. Oh, legacy! It's like a football team. And yeah, that's some of it for us. But if you are an athlete, you're choosing it because you're trying to make it better for your family. You know, um, you know, you're trying to go to black college because you might have went to all white school. Like, there's always something of our personal experience. So, what was your personal experience to say? I'm about to go to Morehouse 
being from a New Yorker? Yeah, no, that's a, that's a great question. And I think your analysis is actually spot on. I mean, we do make our decisions um, a little bit differently uh, and we don't have the same luxury, uh, I think, as many of our white peers, certainly over time. Right. I mean, in terms of how what we can use to make these selections and choices, I think a couple factors and it's never it wasn't just one factor that led me to choose more. So I think there were a couple of things that came together. But one of them was definitely the fact that I was growing up in Brooklyn at that particular moment in time. So, you know, the pastor of my church was a Morehouse man, you know, Cornerstone Baptist Church. And, you know, this was a church that Dr. King had visited. So you had this sort of Morehouse mystique of the pastor. And he was, you know, he was very influential in our, in the, in the lives of, you know, of my family. Um, my parents had gone to a black college. So black colleges were on our radar to be sure. And, and my brother chose as a, he's a New Yorker through and through, he chose to stay in the state of New York. He chose to go to school upstate, uh, to state university of New York, Binghamton. And so in a way, and, 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 and talking to the black, you know, I, I haven't sat down on the sofa, right. And, and, and had, you know, a, a full on seriously therapy lesson. I was just, I was just talking to a brother who was a black psychologist, but I need to get on a sofa. Right. And, and analyze because this, this stuff is deep. And, oh, it's and amazing, was, brother. It's, I'm six oh, years in. It's amazing. Go ahead. Though. Oh man. <laughs> we all it's need amazing. that. Right. Like, we all need that. We learn so much. And I mean, just having this conversation with this one brother just for an hour or so. I mean, I learned so much about myself because here, I was telling him about, you know, what I was saying before about coming back to New York and, you know, I don't want to go wild. And he was like, he's like, oh, that's all the symptoms of post-traumatic hyper-awareness and all this. That's all the symptoms of post-traumatic stress. And in my denial, I was like, yeah, I said, but my brother's not like that, right? Like he stayed in New York. And then he asked me, he says, your brother older or younger? I was like, he's older. He said, by how much? I said, two years. He said, did he go away to college? I said, yeah. He said, where were you when he was at college? I was like, by myself. And I was like, oh, there it is. He was like, your experience is different because you were alone. Like, and you had these couple years to navigate all of that nonsense by yourself. And he said, so your decision part, and how did this play out in my decision? My brother went two hours away to New York, you know, to State University up in New York. I went 15 hours away down <laughs> south. And I was like, I am out. I was like, I am ghost and I ain't coming back. So that was that New York in me was like, nah, I'm done. Like, this is crazy. I am gone. And so Morehouse was like as far, all those other things, right? That tradition, the family, the black college, but it was also a way. And it was also a black college, right? And so part of the draw was distance, but a big part of the draw was being in a space where I didn't have to deal with all that nonsense on a daily basis. Because you're right. It was partly about the corner boys because we were living in an all black neighborhood, segregated neighborhood, working class, poor neighborhood. That's just what New York is. But as soon as you hopped on the train and you were three, you know, two or four, two or three stations away. Now you're going through Canarsie. Now you're going through Bensonhurst. Now you're going through places where Yusef Hawkins gets killed. And so that racial tension was real. And, and that was something I just didn't want to deal with. And the way in which you had to navigate the public school system in New York, like you said, right? Like you get out of the elementary and you're choosing your high schools. Yo, our zone school wasn't sending anybody to college, right? Like period. Our zone public school. I mean, that's just where it was. So the way you, um, the way you finesse, you know, a public high school in uh, New York City is you had to get into a magnet program somewhere. And so I went to a school out in Flatbush, Midwood High School, brothers the same way, 
and we were in a medical science magnet program. <laughs> so the school had about 5,000 students, right? About 60% were black and Caribbean, and they were all concentrated in one particular track, which was just get out of high school and maybe get to college. And then the 40% that was white and Asian and Jewish were in these two magnet programs that were language intensive in humanities and medical science. And that's where my classes were. So I'm in a class, I'm in a school that's 60% majority black. And in my classes, I'm the only, I'm one of only two black people in the classes, you know, in your sciences and your histories and stuff like that. And so part of going to Moss was like, look, I see this. I see how this game is played. I'm out. I ain't dealing with this. I ain't dealing with these teachers no more. I want to be in a space where I can engage and not have to deal with this silliness in the classroom that I'm already picking up on as a 14, 15, 16, 17 year old. You know, I, I've, I've in the last few years, I've learned to have a little empathy and sympathy for some of my people who have made the um, the complaint that, yo, growing up, I didn't even have a black principal. I had all white mm -hmm. teachers and they're coming from New York, you know, because in hip hop, I'm growing up, I'm listening to Nas and Mob Deep. I'm thinking that everything in New York looked like them. You know, yeah. I'm not understanding that they're talking about their section, their particular experience. I'm not understanding. You have to go to New York to know that. Because Detroit is a black ass town. It's just black, right. black, like we all black right. up in there, right? Now we gotta be careful when we go past eight mile. That's when we have to turn our senses on. But for the most it's black, right? And so I don't I didn't necessarily understand how much that was a big deal. So when you go to Morehouse and you in that classroom, how are you feeling down there? Because it's Atlanta and you know, you down there doing the freaknik air, not trying to point none of your personal <laughs> anything like that. But that was a different time. You know it what I mean? Was. It was a, it was a lot of rich blackness. Different world is on TV at that no. time. No. You know, what, describe that. To, you know, for us, you going down there and you touching you you touching your feet down in that soil. Yeah, no, and and I'm so glad you mentioned the different world because this was. I mean, we know from enrollments, right, that there is, you know, there's a decline in black college enrollment starting in the the mid to late 1970s. And that's because large white universities had been forced to desegregate. And so there's a generation in, in the 70s and in the 80s where that, that enrollment in black colleges is declining. And then it begins to pick up in the late 80s and into the early 90s, which is exactly when I headed off. Part of that was just what was in the air and the atmosphere. School Days by Spike Lee. Uh, a different world. Absolutely. Right. So people are talking about black colleges. We were also. A number of us, sort of in my age group at the time, I just turned 50, right? So my age group at that time, we were the children of parents, some of whom, if they were a little bit older, mine were a little bit older who had gone to HBCUs, but also were the children of parents or, 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 or connected to older siblings or cousins who were the first to desegregate white schools. And they were like, that's this crazy, right? And so <laughs> there, was, there was this pushback against, no, 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 no. Right. Because think about it, their parents may have gone to desegregated schools and they were like, you know what? It ain't worth it. And so right in the late 80s, early 90s, we see another uptick in attendance at black colleges. And so going there, Morehouse for me, Howard, Hampton, all these places. I mean, it was incredible. I mean, we're in the dorms. This is also, you know, this is pre-internet. <laughs> I'm dating myself now. This is pre-internet. Right. We, we ain't had no cable in the dorms. Right. I mean, you know, you had plug in phones, no cell phones. So I remember those Thursday nights, right, when a different world is coming on, you could hear a pin drop across Morehouse, Spellman, 
Clark, right? I mean, it was just silence because everybody's tuned in at 30. Everybody's tuned in watching this, right? Dwayne Wayne and Whitley. Dwayne busts out, right? It was like, yo, break up the marriage, break up the wedding. The whole AUC just exploded, right? And people running outside the door. I mean, that's just, that's just an experience, right, that you can only have at a black college, at an HBCU, at a concentrated moment in time. So just the environment was completely different, right? And of course, as you said, I mean, this is Atlanta pre-Olympic. So it wasn't, you know, it wasn't the gentrified Atlanta that you have now with the, you know, Mercedes-Benz dome and stuff like that. It was still a little rough around the edges, but it was still pre-Olympic. And so there was a sense that this was still a burgeoning city, but it was, it was drawing people from around the country. So this was the first time that, you know, you know, yeah, for me, it was New Yorkers coming down from New York and Brooklyn, D.C. It's like go-go music. Like, what's that, right? You had the Dirty South that was really, you know, sort of, you know, plant, planting its roots down there with Atlanta folk. Then you had these people coming in. You had brothers coming in from Houston, and they listened to this Fifth Ward stuff. I'm like, man, what? Like, what's happening, right? And Detroit, you got the Detroit brothers coming down. I'm like, all right, I'm not trying to figure out Detroit. And I realized that's just urban Alabama. I was like, oh, man, what's happening with this sound? And then you got the West Coast cats, right, coming in with the NWA. Because I'm bringing that sort of Afrocentric, right? I mean, this is KRS-One. This is all these folks, you know, in the Northeast. And then the West Coast is like, oh, it's killers and cops. And all this. like, man, what's happening? You're dropping M-bombs. So it was, it was amazing because it just drew young people, brothers and sisters of Spelman and Clark and Morris Brown was still strong at the time. And we were all like, all right, well, what are you listening to? And what are you talking about? And so in a way, we were kind of coming together and exchanging, you know, cultural ideas and understanding like, well, what is it like in Houston, right? I mean, it was, it was really just, it was really just an amazing experience. So I learned as much outside of the classroom, in the dorms, up late at night when we're debating. Sometimes, you know, we're talking silly about girls and stuff like that, to be sure. But we're also debating Pan-Africanism and who's going to lead the revolution, right? At four and five in the morning, we got class at eight. I mean, that's what it was like to be there at that time. Yeah, I'm unapologetically going to spend a little bit more time on this because, you know, this, we have an HBCU moment right here. And, um, <laughs> <laughs> and so, you know, we, we, I'm not going to apologize for this moment because I often try to tell Howard alumni and other black college alumni also that when you're talking about a black college, we I've noticed some people that I've been around, they do this thing where when we're amongst each other, we're having the cultural conversations and the outer classroom conversations, right? But when we want to advocate for a young youth to go to school and we want some experience, all of a sudden they start turning to the X's and O's. And I say to them, like, listen, yo, we got to start sharing those experiences that's not on paper of why a black college is so important. We, we got to start sharing that. Like I had went to a white college my first year and then transferred over. Right. And yes, there are things mechanically that black college can work on. And we'll dive into that conversation. And we all know that. But man, that sense of community. I was telling somebody like, yo, when I was at a white college, straight up, it'd be a class full of 400 people. You can walk in and take the test. A woman with a jury curl can walk in and take my test for me. Like and nobody cared. The professor can look at you or he don't even know who you are. Right. I remember missing a day of class. And I had the flu at Howard. And that professor told my mans that if he ain't in class, or if he don't tell me what's going on, he gonna have problems. And I was like, I had to show up sick to tell her, like, listen, I was really sick, you know what I mean? But 
there was a sense of, of, of community that was going on. And we all remember those moments. Like I, I was, and when you say what well, there are certain moments, um, eras, we all respect your era is such a highly respected era of when you were there at a black college. Like we talk about time, like, man, we was just born a little bit too late. You know, by the time we got older, everybody got too cool, but you know, I take pride. I was in the era of the gear, Richard, die trying to college dropout era. You understand? Like, and that was a significant era to be in college at that time, to be at a black college at that time. Cause we in there with George Bush jr. You know what I mean? We in there with all these things that were going on. And so we were having our moment and our conversations for me. And I, would like for you to tag on this a little bit. It was the argument that I make that diversity is not about race. I've heard black people and white people, but definitely black people say, oh, I didn't go to black college because I wanted diversity. And I'm telling them, listen, I went to a white college. Howard was still the most diverse place I've ever been on the planet. You know what I mean? And so what do you say to that when you hear that? You nailed it. You absolutely nailed it. Diversity isn't just limited to race. And, 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 and the Black community, broadly defined, is so remarkably diverse, right? And you don't really get to appreciate that until you are around Black people, right? And, and not just the neighborhood and, the you know, you know, you're from Detroit, from Brooklyn, not just Brooklynites, right? I mean, like, in, in New York was interesting because it was so diasporic, right? I mean, you got brothers from the Caribbean. I mean, I look back at my friends. And I got, you know, I got the white folk who were just, you know, I got Italians, you know, the Greeks, right? I mean, they, but then the black people, right? I mean, from, from Haiti and from you know, other places in the Caribbean and Latin America, Dominican. So there was a different kind of racial and ethnic diversity coming out of New York. But then I go down to Morehouse and I'm like, you got class diversity, right? I mean, you have, you know, regional diversity. I mean, just the attitudes and culture. I mean, you gain. The greatest appreciation I ever gained from Black folk was at the time I spent around Black folk at college, right? And, and it was just, and it was never, I've never had a moment like that since, that appreciation. And, and I think one of the things that's so powerful about the experience is you, you, you never forget that you're Black, right? So you don't go down there and suddenly it disappears, right? But there's an aspect of blackness that we carry that is defensive when you are around white people. And so that you set to the side, right? Because you don't have to be on your guard in the same way. Now, look, you're still dealing with fools and you're carrying on. You got the arguments and all this other stuff, right? You're still trying to holler at, you know, sisters. And, so you're still doing that. But that weight is, is lifted. And I don't think we really appreciate until it's gone how heavy that weight is, you know, that being on guard all the time, right? Watching and analyzing what's this person doing in a different way that you, that when you're around white folk that you suddenly don't have to do. So when I was at Morehouse, I could actually be a student. I was talking to, if, if we have a moment, I was talking to the, um, the police chief here at Ohio State, which is a black woman. The police chief here at Ohio State was a black woman. Cause you know I, I be doing I, I be I be making white people upset, so I get a lot of death threats and stuff, right? So we talking. So I got a relationship with the police chief here. They're like, Hassan, you got more threats. I like, I know, I know. Anyway, so she finds out in our conversation this last time. She said, um, I, I was talking to her, and she said, she said, yeah. She said, well, I won't be in I won't be in town. I I, I got to go to Atlanta. My son is a freshman at Morehouse, right? And I said, oh. I said, all right. I said, I said, guess what? I said, that's where I went. So we wind up, forget about the security stuff and the crazy white supremacists. 
we start talking about Morehouse. And this is what she said to me. She said, now, no, no, she's been a she's been police all her life. Police all her life, right? And high up in police all her life. And she said her son down at Morehouse gave her a call and said, she said, Mom, she said, you know, we kind of got in a little bit of trouble with student affairs because we had this massive water gun fight, right? Like on like on the yard. It was like massive dormitories. I mean, it was just crazy. And so we all kind of on a little bit. Of, we are a little bit of probation now, right? Like the whole freshman class, right? And I said, well, that, that sounds familiar. But then she said, he said, this is, he said, that was the first time I actually felt safe being a kid. Now think about that. Now he's the son of a cop. He said, I could never have done that growing up, right? Running around with water guns right? Shooting one another, all in love and fun. So we think about with Morehouse in particular, like, you know, Morehouse creates Morehouse men, right? That Morehouse man, that mystique, right? It lets you, it helps you become a man, but it also lets you be a boy. It lets you be a kid for the first time because you don't have to do that accelerated growing and trying to figure out if I run around here, are these people going to think I'm a threat? And so that I think is one of the beauties of, of sort of being in that black space. It, it will help you grow, but it will also let you be who you need to be in that moment. It will let you be a kid. It will let you be youth in ways that you just can't be when you are in these majority white spaces elsewhere. So you take that Morehouse experience that you had, what did you graduate with and what was the step after for you? Yeah. What, what was your mission after for you or did you, not still even having figured out at that point. No, I, I, I figured it out in high school, right? And, th- and not life. I figured out what I wanted to do in high school. So I was in a medical science program and I realized that. And I did some like, you know, medical research internships, right? Because I was following my brother. He was like, yo, you got to apply to this, do this, do this, right? Makes a little sum of money. Ain't going to do it in a grocery store, right? Head up to Columbia University. They got some internships. So we were already in conversation, myself and my friends, about what we're thinking about, because we're thinking about college. And I thought I was going to do some medical research. And I did a summer internship. Never forget this. Department of Anatomy and Cell Biology. It was meant for little black, you know, black and Latino kids. And I'm 16 years old. I'm driving a two hour train ride up to Harlem. And I'm sitting in this lab with like three white people who can't hold a conversation watching stuff spin. And I was like. I can't do this, right? Like, if this is what medical research is, like, I can't, and I'm doing it, sitting in my lab, looking at the Audubon ballroom across the street, which is where Malcolm X was assassinated. And I was like, there's more to that story than what I'm getting in here. And so it was at that moment, I decided, I was like, look, I got to pursue my passion. And the passion was learning about the Black experience so I could make sense of the black reality in the moment. So I went down to Morehouse knowing I wanted to major in history, but also knowing I didn't want to do the high school thing that I wanted to continue to learn and research. So I didn't know kind of how to get a PhD, but I went in saying, yeah, I want to go get a PhD. So that was, so I went into Morehouse, like, and my parents were like, look, you got four years. So you ain't got no more. Ain't no more money after four years. You got four and no more. So I went in, I said, look, here's the mission. Here's the mission. Go in, get a scholarship to go to Morehouse. That's the only way it's going to go. Get a scholarship to go to Morehouse. You got four years to do what you got to do to get a fellowship to go to graduate school to get a PhD. So after those four years at Morehouse, 
I got a fellowship to go to Duke. Uh, and so I went right from Morehouse up to Duke, where I did my master's and PhD in African-American history. But the what, but that was also the first time where when I get to Duke, I'm with black students who had gone to predominantly white schools. And we're approaching this completely differently because I'm walking into these graduate classes, you know, it's, it's you, me, maybe maybe one or two other, other black folk, they might have three or four, right? So out of 12 or 15, there's three or four black folk. And I'm the only one from Morehouse from a black college. And, you know, they go to Brown and, and UVA and all that sort of stuff. And they in there dancing and singing, right? They, they, you know, they, 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 they trying to finesse their way around. I'm in there and it's mortal combat, right? I'm like, no, no, no. What, that, that don't make no sense. Like, what are you saying? They're looking at me like, how are you talking to these white people like this? I'm like, nah, that's Morehouse. Like, we came prepared. That black college is like, I'm not looking for any comfort. I don't need, I got that. I got the, the, the sort of that nourishment, uh, that support from, from my faculty down at Morehouse. Nah, I'm good. I'm here on a mission, right? And we're going we're gonna to get through here. And so it was interesting to see the different perspectives that came about versus that small sample size, to be sure. But from those of us who were coming from black colleges, and those who were coming from the predominantly white colleges, and they were just playing a different game. Like I was like, no, no, no. How? What do you mean? We got to be learning up here. We got to learn. We got to take this knowledge to the people, right? And they were like, what? The people? <laughs> so it was Morehouse was constantly preparing. I think. Well, one thing I'm getting from this conversation, you got a thing for the extremes. You went from Brooklyn to down south, then you went from Morehouse to Duke. You talk about some 180s in your life because I've been on Duke campus, and brother. Oh. It is a completely different atmosphere. What you see on TV is what it is. It is completely a lot of salt, very few peppers. It's not. It's not. It's not, boy. I have to add too because we were talking about the context of the times. It was. It was a real decision for me, right? Because I'm a sports fan, right? And I grew up in the '80s, but coming out of New York, you don't really have. There's no college team in New York. I mean, I pulled for St. John's. It was the old Big East with Chris Mullen against Georgetown. And, and you know, there's a Knicks fan. But you don't really have a college loyalty. So, you know, my brother and I are big sports people. We're watching, you know, college sports and March Madness. And we hated Duke. Like, what, what black people like Duke, right? I mean, so we were rooting for Arkansas. We were rooting for UNLV, right? This is in our college time. It was a Fab Five out of Michigan. Could not stand Duke and Christian Layton. They had a wonderful, you know, I hate Christian Layton. I was like, yeah, me too, right? Like, none of us hated Duke. So I had a real sort of crisis of conscience. And I was like, can I go to this place, right? And in the end, I was like, look, they're paying for it, right? So I got to make, make a smart decision. They had some good faculty there. But it was interesting to be sort of a young black kid, right, who was W.B. Du Bois when he goes to Harvard. And I'm not comparing myself to Du Bois. I mean, this is a genius, phenomenal thinker, right? But he, he, he writes something in his one of his autobiographies that stuck with me. And it actually helped me sort of get through the seven or eight years that I was, that, that I was at Duke. He writes about his experience at Harvard. And of course, he's the first sort of black person to get a PhD at Harvard University. And he writes about that experience. And he says, I was at, but not of Harvard. He was at, but not of Harvard. And I felt that that's what my experience was while I was at Duke. Like I was at Duke and I was getting what I needed out of Duke to, you know, sort of to, 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 for my, for my profession, for my career, 
the knowledge, the training, and that was first class the whole way. But I never was of Duke, right? I never was of the place. And I was okay with that. It's a little bit unfortunate, right? In the sense that you're at these institutions and you would like to be fully a part of it, but they was they still had Confederate monuments, right? You know, statues of Robert E. Lee. I, I couldn't get down with that. You know, so at, but not of. And I realized that. And I wasn't trying to be of, because I wasn't trying to integrate into that. I appreciated being there. I appreciated the opportunities, the resources, the investment that they made in me. And I tried to reciprocate and bring the knowledge that I had. But when I was done, I was done, right? Came there for the mission, came there for a goal, and then moved on afterward. What made you want to have career-wise, like to step into the education field? Because it's one thing to say, okay, this is what I'm schooling for. They're paying for it. I'm going to take these opportunities. But when you became a, a man of your own, right? Like an adult, yeah. and you know, it comes down to, yo, who, who going to pay me? What made you say to yourself, like, okay, I'm going to dive deeper into this education thing? Because it already has a reputation of not paying well, you know, um, discomfort and all these other things. What was it like for you to make that decision? Yeah, it well, it wasn't a money decision. That's to be sure, right? It I mean, you don't be. go in. It can't be, right? <laughs> Nobody's going into any aspect of education, right? I mean, to, to, to make money. Now, one of the things that Morehouse, Morehouse has done a good job, probably too good a job, of sending young black young black men uh, into corporate America, right? And that, that that just wasn't my thing, right? And 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 so if I if it was about money, I had lots of opportunities, right? I mean, I graduated at the top of my class at Morehouse. So I was constantly getting those invitations to the corporate dinners, right? That these recruiters would come in, Morgan Chase and stuff like that. And I show up in little dashiki, and these other brothers got their got their suits on, right? And they're like, Hassan, man, like, why are you here? I'm not here for the free meal, right? Like, I'm poor, man, and I'm here for the free meal. So it wasn't about the money because the money, those were options on the table. The education was, it was twofold, I think. One, and the reason why I wanted to pursue higher education is because it still offered me the opportunity to continue to learn. Like, I was still trying to figure this, I'm still trying to figure this stuff out, right? I'm still trying to make sense of, you know, sort of the, the 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 freedom struggle and social change and how we how our people have fought for change over the years. So academia provides you that space and that time and the resources to continue to learn, right? To continue to research. So that was something that really sort of drove sort of how I wanted to engage in academia and higher ed. I had no illusions about sort of the difficulties and the challenges. I think that's drawn out of Du Bois, right? I was like, all right, I'm going to be at some place, but not necessarily of it. But I also, so I'm, on the one hand, I'm driven by the personal, right? I'm trying, to, I'm trying to grow my mind and understanding. But then I also realize I'm, I'm drawing on my parents and what they had instilled in myself and my brother. They told us from the very beginning, we were youngsters, like, you got to go to college, you got to go to graduate school, you got to get some advanced degree, right? We're six years old, like I said, they're telling us this stuff. But they never said what we had to do. They never told us what it is that we had to do. What they told us was, no matter what you do, we will support you. But it has to be done in service to people. And by people, you really, they really meant our people, right? No matter what you do. Right. It has to be done in service to people. So if, if you're going to become you know, a sanitation worker in the tradition of the Memphis sanitation workers, then you better be picking up trash in a black neighborhood. I mean, like they were like, listen, 
it has to be done in service because if not for our people, you wouldn't be here, right? And and we still got a lot of work to do as a people, right? Collectively, internally, but also dealing with white supremacy. So it has to be done in service to people. And so for me, academia was one, yes, about the individual knowledge, but it was never and has never been about just producing knowledge for the sake of knowledge. Like nothing I write, I write for four people, right? So I'm trying to bridge and engage with both sort of, you know, the production of knowledge and helping translate and lay a groundwork for further understanding, but also making sure I always connect that to the people, to the public. So which means working with, you know, a, a, a good friend, Ahmad Ward down at Mitchellville, right? And like, okay, how can I help you advance the work that you're doing to get this story about reconstruction and freedom out there so people can understand it? So that's always been at the core of what has sort of driven uh, my uh, career trajectory in academia, doing it in connection to the public, to the people. Now, in the course of my travel, you know, um, the media thing can be a little fickle. So one of my second passions, I worked as a youth counselor for 10 years. So I worked in schools, group homes, and all of that stuff like that. You taking a step further, way further than me on that journey, I know what my frustration was, but I would like to ask someone on a higher level of that, what was more challenging, getting the educate like the students or the institutions, like changing the students' minds, ele elevating students' minds, or the institutions? And I'll tell you why I ask that. I'm gonna let you, you know, respond to that first. Yeah, I think it's the bigger challenge for me has always been the institution, um, the the students, and and, and, and partly it's. I mean, students change, right? I mean, generationally, I've been teaching at Ohio State for 20 years now. And I think sort of, a, a, you know, historians look at generations as being every 20 years. But when you think about students, you're really thinking about around seven years is you, you begin to see shifts in sort of what are the events that have politicized them? What are their first public memories? And so I began teaching at Ohio State in 2003. This is just two years after 9-11. Right. And so we're in a war and we're in a new kind of security state. So that is politicizing people like you were saying. Right. I mean, that, you know, that that, that George Bush era. And then there's, you know, the, the the beginnings of the Obama era. And now, you know, 7, 14, 21. Now we're talking about, you know, Donald Trump and this resurgence in white supremacy. And so so the students have changed and what they're looking for has changed. So, you know, coming out of that dot com boom and, and 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 into the you know coming out of the 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 the, the mortgage um uh, uh, what would eventually be a bubble you had a lot you had a lot less interest from students in in terms of social movement organizing and political change but after 9-11 after 20 years of war after the recession and the crash after response you know 15 years out students are like yo where's the revolution after occupy after black lives matter Right. And so in a way, the society and the young people have been changing just as they're a little bit different than I was coming out of the 80s and 90s and you a little bit later. So they're evolving. They're changing. They're seeing things a little bit different, a little bit more radical than they were 10 or 15 years ago. But the institution is the same. Like the institution is about I mean, you know, this is about preservation, like higher education. And, and, and these institutes are about preservation and expansion and dollars and cents. So it's very rare that you get administrations that are like, no, let's see how we can change the world in a way 
is actually to benefit humanity beyond just simply the sciences, right? Talking about racial equality and social justice. So the institutions are always much harder to change because they're not designed to change. They're designed to preserve themselves and to be inherently conservative. It's the young people who are constantly growing. And if you can tap into that growth and really engage them and get them excited about the possibility of change, that to me is, is, is the space I like to be in. Now, because, you know, you've made a very much so career about Black power movement, civil rights, I asked that question about students versus institution, which was a good answer, by the way. When you hear about the Florida Education Department banning the AP African-American history and concerns with their six concerns. And let me just um, spit off these concerns real quick, because when I, this is one, and this is the thing about being Black that people sometimes who are not black don't understand. Sometimes you see some news and I'm a journalist. And so I have to dig, but even I sometimes need a break. So when I saw the headline of that, I was like, Yo, I'm going to go down on Thursday. Right. But <laughs> <laughs> there, there are six concerns. Um, one, intersectionality, activism, two, black queer studies, three, movement of black lives matter, four, black feminist um, literacy thought, five, the reparations movement, six, black study and struggle in the 21st century. What the hell is that? What 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 the hell is that, bro? Like I just gotta simply ask you. That's that that that's that. What is the concern? Nonsense. <laughs> what well, well, here? You know the real concern, right? That they, they're just trying to scapegoat in that, and, and it goes back to the students that you were saying. Well, 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 two things, if I can. One, you hit something that I, I feel you, right? Like this idea that you know, as a as a as a as a, as a researcher, as a scholar, as a historian. As a, as a public intellectual to some extent, I, I get asked these questions all the time. So I got to do that same thing just as you as a journalist. I got to see the headlines. I got to I got I got to read the headlines. And sometimes I'm like, you know what? I can't do it right now. We got nowhere it's going. <laughs> I don't have the energy. Right. Like I can't do it right now. I got to be in a different space. That happens all the time. And we got to do it for our own sanity. Right. Because white people can be exhausting. And this kind of whiteness in particular is especially exhausting. But what they are afraid of, to, th- 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 you know. It's not about, they're not really, at this point, these folk, these political conservatives, they're not even concerned about black people, right? They're not concerned about sort of, you know, how, like, if we teach this to black students, like, if we teach African-Americans, if we teach history the way it happened to black students, like, they're going to become radical. They ain't worried about us. Like, they they could give a damn about what this is, what impact this is going to have on us. They feel that they can be, they can control and contain us. What shook them to the core was the summer of 2020, the George Floyd protest, because you had 20 to 25 million people taken to the streets in June of 2020, 20, another 20 million people taken to the streets in, in July of 2020. These are the largest protests that we have ever seen in U.S. history. It's like not even close. The March on Washington had 250,000 people for an evening on a Sunday, right? We're talking about 20, 35 million people. And most of those people were white, right? And young people. That's just sheer numbers, the demographics. They were black folk and Asian folk and Latino folk, but the majority of the people who took to the streets in summer 2020 were white. And they were not only saying that we need to end police violence, they were also saying, and this is what I think scared these political conservatives the most, they were saying that we need an end to systemic racism. Now, black people have been like, look, the institutions, (laughs) systems, and structures got to change. We've been saying that since day one. Since 1619, we're like, this shit don't work, right? But this is the first time that we've seen white people and young white people in particular really ramping that up. Now, this has been building. They go back to the Occupy movement 10 years ago. They're like, yo, capitalism 
we don't know if this is working for us, right? And then you got the March for Our Lives. They were like, yo, this gun deal, what's happening here? And then it culminates. Where they're like, look, we got to end all this stuff, structural inequality. That shook these white people to the core, these conservative whites, because there's only one response to, if somebody's calling for this sort of systemic change, you, there's only one thing you can do. You can either ignore it or you can change something, right? And they didn't want to change anything because they, they're benefiting from the status quo. So now if you're benefiting from the status quo and don't want to change anything, you got to come up with a public rationalization for not doing anything. And that's where we get this anti-critical race theory. They're, they're teaching, your kids don't know what they're talking about because they're being indoctrinated with all this nonsense, right? They were, they're responding to these young people led by black folk, but white folk who are following behind them, responding to not just them accepting these historical truths, the reality of the American experience and what it is, that is best seen through the prism of the African-American experience, they not only are, they're not only just reacting to these kids accepting that, but once they accept it, they then move from acceptance to action. And it's that action that has scared the hell out of them. So they know, what are they afraid of? They're afraid that if you get these gay brothers and sisters who are white and they start learning about Bayard Rustin, right? This master organizer who was black and gay, they'll be like, damn, well, maybe we could do something too. And they start learning about, you know, a uh, uh, bell hooks and what their critiques. Then they're like, man, wait a minute, we can live in a better world. That's what they're afraid of. And the best, and, and, and you know, so African-American history, black studies is, is, is easy to target because it scares, you know, we still live in a racist society. It scares the hell out of white people. So if you can say, ah, oh, look, you know, they're going to you know, these black people are going to make you a little, you know, little Kylie and little Kim, you know, afraid of themselves and their parents and hate whiteness. You know, that's just tapping into these you know, deeply rooted uh, streams of race, of racism and white supremacy. So that's why they're using it. But it's really about preserving the status quo in all facets. And so it's not a surprise that we go from there to anti, you know, you, you don't say gay bills in Florida to targeting trans youth. I mean, all of that is a part of the same to, to overturning Roe. Right. This is about nah, nah, nah. We're going to preserve whiteness. We're going to preserve capitalism in its existing form. And we're going to use these as rationalizations and justifications for doing it. See, now I just I just got a couple more before we, we go. But because this is for me, my mind gets boggled with. I don't understand this frustration from white America of wanting to bring up things that actually happen. History is the most concrete thing in the world. I remember my younger brother. And you're a younger brother, so you could probably understand this. I came home one day and my younger brother, mother was saying, hey, listen, you got to get on him. His grades been, you know, slipping or whatever. I was like, I got you. So I picked him up from school and I'm talking to my younger brother. I'm like, let me see your report card. And I'm saying he got a D and everything. And I say, yo, how did you get a D in history? It already happened. There is no multiple <laughs> choice. There ain't no math to figure out. It already happened. So I, I have a personal frustration with someone trying to tell me you don't want this to be discussed when it happened, like, how can we pretend the building didn't burn down? So when they bring this argument about CRT, you know, critical race theory, I'm like, but it happened. Talking about slavery or talking about the systems that you put in place to oppress us happened. These aren't theories. Like, they right. happened. <laughs> like, I mean, literally all the way up into the 80s of telling a Black woman that if she was going to receive any kind of welfare or government assistance, she could not have a man in the home. 
That is on that is that happened. That even happens now because as a counselor, I told you I had kids that could not stay with their grandmother because their grandmother was getting funding. Mm. And there could not be no man in the house. So these things are still low-key happening. There's just no radar on them. So yeah. I just I, I I struggle with that, but I'm glad that you were able to make sense out of it because of what happened in 2020. And them seeing it's almost like we're rap music, and we see it time and time again, right? Drugs in the community don't matter until it affects the suburbs. Yeah. Hip hop, nobody cared about them disrespecting nobody until little white kids start listening to it. Our protest, uh, it was a little bit of annoyance, but it became a problem when the majority of America who had the blue eyes and were white and they start getting involved because they start understanding the totality of how this affects all of us. When you see that for yourself, I, I saw this interview with yours that you kind of touched on. I would like for you kind of like, you know, respond to it when you was breaking out the difference between movement versus struggle. Mm. No, absolutely. And, and I think it's important for us to understand the distinct difference. So sometimes, you know, first, when we talk about the civil rights movement, right, it's actually a real misnomer talking about just civil rights because black folk have never just been fighting for civil rights, rights that are granted by government. Black folk have been fighting for that to be sure in the context of America, but we've also been fighting for 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 human rights, right? Those rights that are granted uh, by God or by nature, depending upon your belief system, that all people are entitled to by birth. So it's always been this combination. Yeah, we want the right to vote, but we want the right to to live in a decent house. We want the right to have access to a decent education. Constitution doesn't say anything about housing. Constitution doesn't say anything about education. So it's always been this expansive struggle um, or, or, or effort to secure these basic rights. But a movement, uh, you know, in, in terms of its technical terms, is very, it's hard to sustain, right? I mean, I mean, think about it. We had 25, 25 million people, you know, take it to the streets in, 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 in summer 2020. And by September, we were talking about a couple thousand here and there. It's hard to sustain that kind of energy, right? And so movements don't tend to extend over long periods of time. They're usually confined, right, to, you know, a core group of activists over a number of years. So, you know, we see we see local and it, and it usually tend to be local. Right. I mean, so we see national protests or protests happen nationally, but they're all organized locally in some way, shape or form. So movements tend to be local. Movements tend to be extend over short periods rather than long periods of time. But movements also fall under the umbrella of a broader struggle. So we, African-Americans haven't been engaged in a movement since 1619 to the present since we first arrived on the shores, because the movement, you know, movement don't last 400 years. What we've seen, though, is that from the moment Black folk hit these shores, we have been engaged in a fight for our freedom. We have been engaged in constant protest. The persistence of Black resistance is one of the core themes of the African-American experience. And so the struggle for freedom, the struggle to secure basic civil rights and human rights is what we have been a part of for this 400-year sojourn in this, in what would become America. So we've always been engaged in struggle. That hasn't changed. And it's not going to change. That's just in, encoded in our DNA. Even when things are getting worse, the hope is always, can always be found in the knowledge that people will always struggle. They're always going to fight for freedom. I don't care if you're on the depths of a slaving vessel during the Middle Passage or your Mamie Till's mother, right, mourning the death of her son. Or today, you're a mom mourning the death of your son in Memphis, Tennessee, who lost their life to the hands of five black police officers 
right? Because you can integrate a police force, but if you don't change the the culture of it, you're going to wind up with the same outcome. You're still, you're always going to have people who are going to fight for justice. So that is a part of an ongoing struggle. It may not always rise to the level of a movement, a social movement with distinct organizations and concrete goals, specific goals and the like, but there will always be struggle. That's just who we are. Okay, second to last question. I got to ask you this because every time we have scholars on, I ask them this. And so I need to bring this to you. What is it about this new era of people wanting to listen to people who don't know what they're talking about? Because you have an extensive <laughs> history when it comes to this, right? What is it about this era of, you know, an, an era of social media of us just listening to a plain Jane, just spew out a bunch of, and listen, no disrespect to whatever your personal belief is, but I'm not even on that. Like, there's just been an anti-intellectual, anti-reading type of yeah. movement that's going on. What is up with that right now of people listening to someone who just rolled out of bed and they got a whole bunch of views versus people like you who have a, like, this is what you do. This is your passion. Yeah, you know, it, it, it's not an accident. And this is something that has been evolving over time. This idea of us, as you said, sort of embracing a culture of anti-intellectualism, right? And, this is, you know, and I say that's not an accident because this has been politically designed, right? I mean, the way in which people who align themselves to the political right and not just the far right extremists, just the right but they, they strategically, I mean, this is going back, this is going back to the 70s and into the early 80s. They said, listen, the way in which we're going to seize power and regain, regain power and hold power is by critiquing those who actually believe in science and knowledge and expertise, right? And so you have all of this, you know, not, you know, critiques of like, you know, that's just the, the liberal elite. Like, what are you talking about? Right. Like they're just people who have expertise and this has real world consequences. This is life or death consequences. This has been building. Right. This is the way you critique somebody who has a legitimate critique of the economy of capitalism because they're economists. And you're like, no, no, no. That's just a liberal elite. They don't know what they're talking about. He's a Nobel winning <laughs> economist who's saying that, you know, you got to raise the minimum wage like corporations are like, no, we don't. Right. And the politicians who are in their bag are like, aha, that's just, you know, that's just the Northeast elite. Right. And and that is so in other words, the, the anti intellectual trend is deeply rooted, certainly within the last 30, 40 years. But it's designed to keep us from changing things that don't make any sense. And I say this has real we, we've seen this play out in real time and cost people their lives with this the critique around the response to the coronavirus, right? We're not going to listen to the expertise in COVID-19, right? As a nation that then affects our public policy. Like, are you stupid? Like, like you know, it, it, it was at that moment. Like, I always thought, this is why I knew we were seriously in trouble, right? Like, the road ahead is going to be seriously rocky. Because I, I thought that there was, when we go back to all these school shootings and, and, and massacres and the like, I was... I, I said, you know what? There's a number. There's a number of people who will be killed at some point in a massacre, in a shooting that will force people who are on the political right to change their views and change public policy. And I was like, well, maybe it'll be Sandy Hook, right? I mean, these were kids, right? Innocent little white kids, right? That didn't change them. Maybe it'd be Las Vegas, right? I was like, man, a hundred people killed or whatever it was, 500 wounded by, didn't. 
It was, I said, but what's the number? What's the number? Pulse nightclub, what's the number? The response to the COVID-19 epidemic taught me that there is no number. There is no number of dead that will move people off of this this anti-intellectual position and do what is right to preserve people's lives. That to me is sobering. Like you are literally willing to let a million people die in order to hold on to political power. That's where we are. And that's not an intellectual argument, right? So the real danger with the anti-intellectualism is that you can't then debate it. Like we're not debating policy position. Like you can't debate whether or not this is a real virus. Like, like what's, you can't, how are you, that's not, those aren't two equal sides. Like the vaccine, like what are you, what are you saying? It's it's a vaccine. Like what, what, how, how, you can't, like there's nowhere to go with that. And when you're in that position and you have so many people who are, tr- who, who just refuse, this, this is why I say what, 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 if, if we're not, if we're rejecting the intellectual approach to solving the problems in the world that we have, what are you left with? Now, look, I said earlier, we began, I was like, I grew up in Brooklyn, grew up in the Baptist church, Cornerstone Baptist church. I'm a Christian. I'm just not a particularly good one, but that's okay. That's, that's for another podcast. We'll have to, we'll have to have the episode. But what I understand, the, the, the one thing I don't debate, and I, I, you know, we talk about anything. We talk about sports. We can debate sports. We can debate history, sociology, political science, anything. The one thing that I don't debate with people, I don't debate religion. I don't debate religion. I, we can discuss religion. You know, I can learn from you. I can offer my interpretation of something, but I don't debate religion. Because in the Western context, certainly when we're dealing with Christianity and Judaism and like, religion is based on faith. That's the core of it, right? Certainly within the Judeo-Christian tradition. Religion is based on faith. And faith, by definition, is belief in the absence of fact, right? Like you just believe this, right? Because it's what you believe. Now, I'm not critiquing that. I'm saying that's just what it is. I can't move you off a position by showing you some fact if you don't believe in the fact. Like your faith is not based upon some science, some scientific understanding, some factual understanding. That's what religion is, right? That's the power of it. Our politics on the political right are now becoming like that religion, right? It's not rooted in fact. It's rooted in faith, this belief in the absence of fact. There is no debating that. Like you cannot move these people off of these positions because by showing them the facts, because their position isn't rooted in an interpretation of those facts. That's a very dangerous place for us as a society to be it is and this is my last one and then we can you know go and this shouldn't take so long how did you feel when your brother who became your brother hakeem jeffries became the house democrat minority leader when he dropped those bars those abc bars (laughs) (laughs) did you call him and text him like yo like how did you feel about them bars yeah i was watching it i was look i was up late the whole week like everybody else watching this and, you know, I was watching the speech right, on my laptop, right? Just like everybody, like so many other people. And I didn't catch it at first. Like I was like, everybody was like, oh, okay. I mean, he, he sort of, you know, like we, we talk about public speaking and we do a lot of public speaking. So we always watch these stuff. And he just sort of gradually moved into it. It wasn't until he got to like around H, right? I was like, well, damn, this dude is running through the alphabet, right? I was like, okay, well, go ahead. 
Now, look, I will tell you, as somebody who does you know a lot of public speaking, it is hard to sustain a rhythm that long, right? I mean, to go A to Z. So by the time he was, in, you know, he was like, all right. I was like, all right, man, you're going to make it? You're going to make it? But it was great. <laughs> and he did. He did. You know, and that was all on him, right? I mean, you know, and, and what I liked actually about it, not only was, you know, delivery was strong, but it had a message. It had a point, right? And, and, and he was like, look, we're laying down a gauntlet. This is how we are. Now, our politics are sometimes a little bit, I'm a little bit to the left of him, but that's cool. I, I'm not, I don't have to compromise on anything. That's the, that's the good part of being outside of politics, right? So there's some individual critiques about some of the things that he would do. But as a whole, I'm like, man, this is good. It's about democracy, right? And that's what we should be about, right? As, as he, and I did text him out. I was like, yo, that was pretty cool, man. And he was like, I appreciate it. I was like, I know you can go A through Z. He was like, yo, you got to do what you got to do. <laughs> so it, was a good, it was a good moment. It was a good moment. That's good, man. It, it, yeah, don't don't feel bad. It didn't get me into like I, and I was like, oh, he's going on alphabet, you know. So yeah, man, brother, I, I solely appreciate you, and you know, and I like to tell everybody this invitation is something that's ongoing. So please feel free to reach out. I'm going to connect with you, uh, you know, through your social medias and everything. But feel free to continue to come in, especially when it comes to something of coming up when they're trying to do with our education. You know, we need people yeah. like you to come back in, even just for like thirty minutes or whatever to let us know the significance of why these moves that they're making are so important because we need voices like you. So please, please, please feel free um, to come in and let us know um, what you got going on next and your social media, brother, so how we can follow you. Yeah, certainly. So um, I'm most active on uh, on Twitter at uh, Prof Jeffries, P-R-O-F Jeffries, J-E-F-F-R-I-E-S. I got a couple of uh, projects that are wrapping up right now. Uh, one on that's about to uh, a documentary film project that I was a part of uh, called Fight the Power that Chuck D uh, produced and narrated four parts coming out on PBS uh, on January 30th, the first Monday. And it's going to run all through February. So I'm excited about that. But another film project um, that was connected to the original, the first book that I wrote on Lowndes County, Alabama, called Lowndes County and the Making. The book is called Lowndes County, uh, Bloody Lowndes, Civil Rights and Black Power in Alabama. But the the documentary, which is available now on Amazon and uh, Apple and other you know, sort of streaming services, is called Lowndes County and the Making of Black Power. Uh, and, you know, it has some Detroit connections because those folk, you know, in Lowndes County uh, and Alabama have moved up to Detroit. So that's streaming. That's available uh, right now. So those are a couple projects. Um, that are coming to fruition, uh, and I would love for the audience um, to sort of check them out. Uh, some good learning opportunities there. That's dope. We appreciate you, Professor Professor Jeffries of all blackness. I appreciate you <laughs> all day long. Um, that's it. That's an episode of History of Being Black. I feel like my blackness has been elevated, and I'm pretty sure the professor's blackness feel like he's been elevated. We we appreciate you as usual. You can hit me up on all social media platforms at J Hall Society. Make sure you check out episodes of the History of Being Black on, I can't name them all, but the Spotify's and the Apple's and you know where to go. But for more information, make sure you go to History of Being Black on Instagram and me no Lion on Instagram also too, if you want to follow and know understand when the new episodes are being updated. Appreciate you, Professor. As usual, be blessed with successful. We talk to you soon. The History of Being Black is hosted by Jay Hall, executive producer Ken Johnson. Find the History of Being Black podcast on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Spotify, 
iHeartRadio, Odyssey, Amazon Music, or where you get your podcast. Find the History of Being Black podcast on IG at the History of Being Black. Follow the Mean O'Line Media Podcast Network on IG at Mean O'Line Media. Get the Mean O'Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The History of Being Black podcast is a Mean O'Line Media production.